Our study this evening is entitled, The Armor of God, Spiritual Dress for Success. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, this is what we read. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So when you're thinking about an armor, we think of an uh, army that you have to be involved in, a part of. So the first question we are going to ask ourselves is, are you a soldier in God's army? Are you a soldier in God's army? Do you recognize that you are a soldier? Do you recognize you are in God's army? And for that, the first question we would consider then is, how do we get into the army? How do we get into the service of the Lord? Many people limit Christianity just to church membership. Or maybe they would say, I've been baptized, I've been confirmed, or I attend regularly, or they may say, I read my Bible and I pray every day. As a result, I am a Christian. But Christianity is a personal relationship with God, but More than just that starting off of our relationship, it is actually a life of service. It starts off by making a commitment, asking God to take control over our lives. But that's just the beginning. Once you enter in into God's kingdom, you and I immediately become a part of God's army. When you're thinking about a physical army, there are normally two ways that you can be a part. If the government says you have to be drafted into the army, yes, you you have to be. Or, on the other hand, you can choose to enlist. In our country, people choose to join the army. When it comes to God's army, when we say yes to God, we recognize that we have now become a part of an army. So, Ask yourself this evening, do you recognize that you are in an army? And when you say you are in an army, you are a soldier. And when you say you are a soldier, you don't entangle yourself with the civilian affairs, but you are constantly on the alert. This is what Christian living is all about. Now, what type of a soldier are you? Not all soldiers are the same, isn't it? There are different types of soldiers. So, there are four categories of soldiers that you can think of. Number one would be the spies, okay? They still have the uniform of an an army, but they don't really belong to that army. They have infiltrated the army trying to get information. So, uh, in the army of God, they have the uniform of Christ. They talk a good talk. They are still enemies of God. In other words, externally by the talk that they do, whether, you know, uh, how they behave in terms of the general Christian jargon. You may say, hey, this person has made a commitment, but not really. They are not really God's army because they are still enemies of God. They are still doing their own thing. They are just coming around 
to be a part of God's army to check out what is happening. Second type of a soldier is one who is absent without leave. Yes, they joined the army, but they have deserted it. They made a commitment to follow after Christ, but maybe things got a little too tough, so they say, I don't want to be in the army, so they deserted. Third one is the wounded soldiers, wounded soldiers. They are those who have been hurt by others or themselves and are not able to fight. They need healing and there are a lot of wounded soldiers in God's army. They started off to recognize, hey, I'm in a battle, but when people said some things, they got upset, they got hurt. When people in the body of Christ said something or did something, they got wounded and said, you know, I don't want to be a part. And as a result, they have left the army. But the fourth type is the trained and the ready soldiers. They are spiritually fit. They are willing and able to do any job which will benefit the cause of Christ. So as a start off for our study, ask yourself, you know, under which category of a soldier are you? Are you a spy? You outward appearance seem to be part of God's army, but inside heart is not there. Or did you start off and then you have deserted? Or have you been wounded so you don't really want to get deeper? Or are you trained and ready? Now, what are the steps to being a better soldier? What are the steps to be a better soldier? Paul writing to uh, the Ephesian church, you know, sitting in prison, looking at another Roman army, army that was looking after him, the Roman guards who were looking after him, looking at you know, their you know, clothing, looking at their garments. He thinks about what should be the Christian army. And in these verses, he is giving us uh, you know, three steps of how we can be a better soldier. Step number one is be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's what chapter 6 and verse 10 tells us. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Remember, there's not a physical battle, so it cannot be won with physical strength. The strength has to come from God. So we need to be on a spiritual exercise program. The first step is then to be strong in the Lord. Secondly, we need to put on the whole armor of God. And that's what we will be looking at this evening, putting on the whole armor of God. When you join the army, you don't look or dress or act like a civilian. When you join the army, the army gives you all those uh, equipments and the dress that is uh, correct for the army. And when we serve, when we join God's army, when we serve God's army, God says, hey, this is the armor that I want you to put on. This is the dress that I want you to put on. This indeed is the spiritual dress for success. And once we have done that in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14, we have the third step. Stand firm. Stand firm. This requires the highest level of commitment. Nothing in our life should take priority over our spiritual service. So these are the three things that must be there if you want to be a better soldier. Be strong, put on the armor, and then stand firm. Okay. Now, 
Paul, if you notice, was imprisoned in Rome for two years under the watchful eye of the Roman soldiers. And as a result, Paul was able to write four epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And uh, he continued preaching even through the times that he was there. So living for two years with soldiers of the Roman army must have made an impression on Paul. And at some point, you know, God gave him this analogy of comparing the Roman army in a dress and what is the equivalent, if we were to say, in the spiritual realm. Why do we need spiritual armor? Why do we need spiritual armor? Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 tells us, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. There's incredible pressure from the outside world around us. But we are still, we are not crushed, we are not in despair, we are not forsaken, we are not destroyed. Why? Because of the armor of God. So if you are facing situations, even right now, where you are feeling your heart pressed, where you're feeling you are perplexed, you don't know what to do, if you are being persecuted or struck down, you and I need to put on the spiritual armor of God so that we would not be affected. Now, what is the armor of God? What is the armor of God? The armor of God is an amazing metaphor for action we need to take in our spiritual lives. Paul sets the scene for us. We are fighting a war. The stakes are higher than they have ever been in human history. It is a metaphor for taking action. It is a metaphor for taking action. When Paul says, put on, put on, it's a responsibility that we need to do. In fact, you know, it is in Greek, it's an imperative, it's a command. You know, it is not to say, if you want to put it on, no. This is something that you and I need to do daily, put on. This is the garment I've given you, this is the equipment I've given you, so that you would not you know, be you know, destroyed by the enemy. So, if you want to survive and thrive in the world full of pressures, God says, put on this armor. Not your own armor, but the armor that God has given to us. And once we have put on that armor, the Bible tells us a couple of times even in these verses, stand, stand, stand. In other words, he is not asking us to go and fight the enemy. The enemy has already been conquered. The enemy is trying to get at us. But if our, uh, our defenses are strong, then we can be sure that the enemy has no say, no way into our lives. But if we don't have the armor of protection, then the enemy can get at us. Remember, the armor is given not to go on the offensive to sit and fight against the enemy because the enemy has already been defeated. The only offensive weapon that is mentioned in this uh, armor is the sword of the spirit. And that's the word of God through which we can you know, destroy the wiles or the lies of the enemy. So God is asking us to make sure that once we have put on this armor, and we look at all that it means, and once we have affirmed the truths of this armor, 
then we are standing on victory ground. We are saying this victory has been achieved for us because of what Christ did for us. Enemy, you have no way, no say in this territory. This territory belongs to God. That is what God is asking us to do. So we must be careful. We must not think that this armor is something that we need to put on and then sit and fight and get a victory. No. The victory has already been won. God is only saying, protect yourself so that the enemy is not in a position to attack you when the attacks come that you would not give in. Okay? So let's look at this armor one by one. The first thing that is mentioned is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Now, you may say, why start off with a belt? Okay, you may say start off with a sword, but why of all things a belt, isn't it? Maybe you would have said, maybe you know, take a big shield around or take a breastplate around, but why a belt, you know? Why was the belt used in the Roman army? In each of these uh, you know, armor, we look at you know, how the Roman army used it, for what purpose, and then we'll find equivalence for us in our spiritual life. So what was the belt used for in the Roman army? The belt which was known as the singulon or baltius played a crucial role in the effectiveness of a soldier's armor. It was the belt that held the scabbard without which there will be no place to put a sword. So the belt actually was a uh, was a place that you could keep the sword in. So if there was no belt, there was no place to keep the sword. So imagine an overzealous soldier who is charging into battle without his belt. He doesn't have any sword with him. The belt was commonly worn by Romans and it was always worn by soldiers. It was approximately in a four to six inches wide and fastened around the middle, and the belt was made of leather or linen. Many times the belt would support an apron that hung down, covering the soldier's groin, and the belt was worn outside the flowing robe that was commonly worn in Paul's time. And this is why when the Bible says, gird up your loins, it basically means tuck up your robe under your belt, okay? That is what it basically means. So, Matthew Henry's commentary says, the belt girds or secures all the other pieces of our armor. So, he says, truth should cleave to us as a belt cleaves to our body. Just as the belt surrounds the body, the first important principle for victory against the enemy is the truth that should surround us. And just as much as the belt also has another place in a, in a, to keep the sword, if you are surrounded by the truth of God's word, then the enemy who is a liar cannot come anywhere close. So what is truth? What is truth? Remember Pontius Pilate asked the Lord Jesus, the person you know, who, who said, I am the way, the truth and the life, he stood before him and, and asked, what is truth? So what is truth? To put on the truth is literally to put on the word of God and Christ. John chapter 17 and verse 17 says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So God's word is truth. So we surround ourselves with the truth of God's word. 
John 14:16 says uh, Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life so we stand firm on this truth of Jesus who has won the victory it is like you know Jesus is the one who is standing in front of us when the enemy attacks you know and that is what the symbolism of the belt is we are behind him we are surrounded by him as a result the enemy has no say no way in our lives god's promises his commands and his word they are all god's truth now what does truth have to do with a belt in 1 thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21 we read test all things hold fast what is good test all things hold fast what is good as christians you are called to test all things and to hold only that which is good Remember the uh, the people in Berea were more noble than the people in Thessalonica why because the bible tells us in acts 17 and verse 11 they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so so the relationship between the truth and the belt is truth enables us to know what is the uh, the correct thing we are living in a world which you know, has so many new teachings so many new doctrines coming in how do we know what is right and wrong so that we don't go astray into the enemy's uh, uh, deception how can we be prevented from the many deceptions that are in the world today it is the truth we are girded with you know, as a belt so as a belt encompasses the waist okay our conviction to the truth encompasses us now we must know it is not opinions that matter it is convictions it is not to say that okay you know you have your opinion i have my opinion what is the conviction of what god's word says on a particular issue so the truth is what encompasses that you know connects it or uh, puts it together holds it together so that the satan with his lies is not able to penetrate in and as i mentioned earlier the belt was also used in roman armor to uh, keep a place for the soldier's sword our sword which is the sword of the spirit likewise is a sheath god's word becomes in a relevant and powerful only when we are able to use it effectively so we must have the belt of truth then we are able to use that in a sword at the right time in the right place so what are the steps to put on the belt of truth what are the steps to put on the belt of truth three simple things first of all we need to know the truth we need to know the truth the scripture tells us we know the truth and the truth will set us free yes the very unsearched for the truth so first of all we need to know the truth what does god's word say what does god's word say about so many issues what does god's word say about the enemy and his tactics what does what does god's word say about whether he is going to be victorious or not whether he is defeated or not what does god's word say about the future so we must know the truth secondly we must believe the truth we must believe what the bible says once we know the truth of god's word on different issues we must believe it and then we must act on it we must you know, respond to what god tells us oftentimes people you know miss out on this because you know either they don't take time to know the truth or when they know the truth they don't want to believe it because they may say hey this was not for today this was for that generation and they try to explain away the truth but we must know it believe it 
and also act upon it. What other lessons can we learn from the biblical analogy of having our worst waist girded by a belt? In Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 35 to 37, Jesus told us this uh, parable about uh, you know, being ready for his coming. He says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. In other words, Christ is coming back soon. Yes, we are aware of that. What do we do during this period? Make sure that we are ready. How are we ready? By putting the belt of truth around us. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind. As I mentioned, there are these flowing robes, and, uh, and you know, in order to make you know, uh, a quick passage and you know, run faster, this was lifted up and tucked in with the belt. So if there was no belt, it was difficult to move. So this is what God is saying here. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Let your mind be uh, ready for his coming. As the belt holds all the rest of the armor together, truth holds all the rest together in life. Now, what are the dangers if we don't wear the belt? Again, now we recognize the importance of wearing the belt, but what happens if we don't wear the belt? Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 tells us we will be then be conformed to this world. That's why it says don't be conformed, but if we are not wearing the belt, we will be conformed to the patterns of this world. The world that we are living in today is a a world that says, you know, there's no standard of right and wrong, you know. You know, what is uh, what is wrong yesterday is right today. What is you know, wrong for you would be right for me. Now, there's no standard of right and wrong. That's what the world is telling us. But we must make sure that we are not conformed to that teaching. We must recognize there are absolutes. We must recognize there is truth. There cannot be two truths, you know, one contrary to the other. And the truth that we have comes from God's word. So as a result, we must wear the belt of truth. So ask yourself this evening, how secure is your belt? How secure is your belt? Are you sure about the truth of God's word? Are you sure about the truth concerning his doctrines? Are you sure about you know, the fact of who he is and what he is doing and you know, his coming back again? Are you sure about it? And are you girding your loins? Are you preparing your mind? Are you making sure that Satan and his lies are not creeping in, but you are willing to stand firm? The second uh, uh, part of the armor is the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. Why is the breastplate important and what is the best breastplate in the Roman army? First of all, what purpose did a breastplate serve for the Roman army? There were two types of breastplates that were worn by Roman soldiers. One was made by joining several broad curved metal bands together using leather laces. That was one pattern of a, a breastplate, curved metal bands around the breast and then a lower. The second was a ch- type of chain mail 
constructed by joining many small metal rings together to form a vest. Now, the purpose of the breastplate was to form a barrier of defense for the soldier's vital organs. It provided protection for his upper body, which contained the vital organs like the heart and the lungs and so on. Without a breastplate, a soldier will be asking for death because any attack could instantly become fatal. But with a sturdy breastplate, the very same effects, uh, attacks will become ineffective and useless. So, what is the equivalent of this breastplate of righteousness, as Paul puts it? So, number two, why is righteousness associated with a protective armor like a breastplate? Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 4 tells us, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. What is really important, the Bible tells us, it is not riches, but what is important is righteousness. So without righteousness, we leave ourselves almost certain for death. Whereas with righteousness as our breastplate, no matter whatever attacks Satan will put on us, we are still able to be protected. So now we would ask, what is the righteousness? What is the righteousness? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 34 tells us, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your own shame. To be righteous is to do what is uh, right. To, to be righteous is to be in a right standing with God. These are the two aspects of righteousness. A right relationship with God. A right relationship with one another in terms of the actions. So, the first part of it is the right standing with God. So, when Satan attacks us, if we have this breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness which is not ours, but the righteousness that belongs to Christ, then he is not in a position to you know, uh, attack or to destroy our inward parts. What separates us from God, causing him to withhold this protection? Isaiah 59 verse 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God. So, man's sin has separated us from God. When Adam and Eve sinned, if you notice, their separation happened. Now, when Christ paid the penalty for our sins, now we have been restored back. So, if we are standing on our own righteousness, on our own goodness, on our own good deeds, then Satan has enough way. He may say, hey, you have done this, you have done this, and you have done this wrong, you have done that wrong. And then as he is called as the accuser of the brethren, he is able to penetrate our innermost being. But, this is why, whose righteousness should we be wearing? Not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness, as Isaiah 64 and verse 6 will tell us, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our righteousness would not stand in any way for us to be protected. It is as filthy rags. So, we must first of all have the position of righteousness. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9 tells us to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, 
but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So the righteousness uh, uh, that we have as our breastplate, it is not our righteousness, but it is the righteousness of God. Okay. Now, how do we have that? Because 1 Second Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So when God looks at us now, he doesn't look at us as sinful, he looks at us as righteous. So the breastplate of righteousness, Christ, the Father sees the righteousness of God in us. So when we have the breastplate of righteousness, Christ's righteousness is guarding us, then Satan cannot accuse us as anyway, because Satan cannot accuse the Lord of any sin. Number two, not only do we have the practice of righteousness, uh, the uh, position of righteousness, we must also have the practice of righteousness. Our positional righteousness will win the final war. Yes, we have been saved. But our practical righteousness is what will cause us to either win or lose the daily battles. It is one thing that God is looks at us as righteous. But if we are not able to practice that righteousness in our daily life, then when Satan comes and tempts, when Satan comes and accuses, we would lose the battle. So there must be the position of righteousness. There also must be the practice. There also must be the protection. There also must be the protection. Now remember the breastplate is to protect the heart and the lungs and all the important parts of our inner being. This is what God expects of us. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. The protection is Christ's peace ruling our lives. So this evening, ask yourself, do you have this breastplate? Are you depending on your righteousness? Are you depending on Christ's righteousness? Yes, they have the position of Christ's righteousness. But are you daily living that practice of doing what God wants you to do? Otherwise, we would be you know, falling prey to Satan's accusations. Let the peace of Christ rule your heart. The next one is the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. Shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. Shoes, like the belt, may seem uh, superfluous in a discussion about spiritual armor. Isn't it? You may say, what's the importance of shoes? But think for a moment, if a soldier had everything but had no shoes on, and how would he be able to run around and be safe as well? So in this uh, area, we will look at why our spiritual shoes matter and why we need to make sure we are equipped with them before we get onto the battlefield. So let's look at the shoes that the Roman army wore and what purpose did they serve. The Roman soldier's shoes were made of thick leather with straps that tied to the soldier's lower leg. Sometimes the soles were made of wood and covered with leather for comfort. Many times the the shoes would be studded with nails at the bottom for better traction or a hold. And soldiers marching into battle needed a firm foundation. So when it speaks about be prepared, be ready for the battle, basically it's saying have a firm foundation. So when the soldier marched into battle with his shoes, 
and the shoes provided a firm foundation when the battle raged. Okay, so that is the purpose of the shoes to have a proper foundation. Your foundations need to be secure. If your foundations are not secure, then you can easily trip and fall. What is this foundation? What is this gospel of peace? <laughs> okay. The gospel we are aware of, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose again to accomplish the victory over sin, also to accomplish the fact that he is indeed God. We are aware of the gospel. That is the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Now, of course, there are a lot of other gospels today, which is not the genuine gospel. The prosperity and the health gospel are not the gospel that the Bible speaks about. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But what is the gospel of peace? The gospel of peace affects the spiritual battle in three areas. Okay. The first one is our peace with God. That is our salvation. That's the foundation, isn't it? If you're going to be in the battle, you need to make sure that your foundations are clear. You need to be sure that you are saved. You need to be sure that Christ is living in your life. Otherwise, when Satan comes and says, hey, you've done this, you've done that, you're not part of God's family. If your foundation is not sure, if your shoes are not correct, then you would not be able to be victorious. Secondly, Peace with other Christians, the unity, that is so important. As a team together, you know, we become a strong army to fight against the onslaughts of the evil one. But if there is disunity in the body, disunity in the church, you'll find that Satan can easily get an entrance. And that's what Satan tries to do even today, isn't it? Work on disuniting people. And we need to work on having peace with other Christians to be united together. Thirdly, peace with circumstances, which is the absence of worry or the peace of God that passes all understanding. To know that God is in charge, no matter whatever is happening, when Satan will come and put worry into our minds, fear into our minds, we have that peace that God is in charge. This is the foundation of the gospel of peace. Now, how do we put on these shoes. How do we put on these shoes? Number one, we need a personal relationship with the author of peace. The Bible tells us God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. So the foundation has to be clear. You need to be clear about what you believe and why you believe it to be true. And once you are sure of that, it becomes a firm foundation. Satan cannot uh, uh, make you sway with every wind of doctrine that comes in. Secondly, we need to keep our attention on the Prince of Peace. The Bible tells us that will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. you know, so if we are going to focus our attention on the fact of who God is, then in the midst of all the turmoil around of the warfare, we are still at peace. That is the shoes of peace. Thirdly, we need to allow the Spirit of God to control our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Okay, That is the gospel of peace. We must allow God to control our lives. Number four, we need to pray about everything. And even in this passage in Ephesians and also in Philippians, it says, don't worry about every, anything, but pray about everything. And that is what we need to do. That is the foundation. That is the shoes. 
For, fifthly, we need to love God's, uh, God's word. Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law. So how do these spiritual shoes help us to stand firm? How do these shoes help us to stand firm? John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Christ has overcome the world, and as a result, we don't have to be afraid about anything. So the spiritual shoes that helps us to stand firm is the peace that God gives us every day. Just as shoes allow us to walk on otherwise painful terrain without fear, so the preparation of the gospel of peace allows us to traverse the otherwise painful trials and tribulations of life without any fear. Do you have the gospel of peace? Is your salvation secure? Is your foundation strong? Or is it weak? Number four, the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Up to now, Paul's descriptions of the armor of God has been limited to items we wear. We put on the belt, we put on the breastplate, we put on the shoes. They are essentially things that hold themselves up. Whereas the shield is different. Shield is something that we take up, something that we have to raise. Just strapping it to our arm is not going to be sufficient. We must uh, you know, make sure that we are able to hold it against the darts of the evil one. Now, how did the shield work in the Roman army? The Roman soldier's shield was made of wood and then covered with animal skin. And a typical shield for the Roman period would be four feet long and three feet wide. Four feet long and three feet wide. So, pretty long one. Many times, iron was molded around the edges to strengthen the shield. <clears throat> so, and oftentimes, the soldiers would form a barrier by putting their shields side by side. And sometimes, the Roman soldiers would soak their shields in water so that the flaming arrows would not burn up the shield. So the shield's protection was all this from front and sometimes they would lift their uh, the shields up so that there will be no attack from the top. If you have seen any of the Astrid comics of the Roman army, you will find these things happening, coming together side by side. That is a formidable shield, putting the shields on top so make sure that the enemy does not attack from top. That was what the shield was all about. It was for your protection. So that the enemy attacks, you need to move the shield in that particular direction. The fiery darts of the enemy is able to be protected with the shield. Our spiritual shield is not wood or metal, but it is of faith. Galatians 2.20 tells us, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by faith in the Son of God. So, faith is our shield. Now, what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, isn't it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is substance. Faith is evidence. The evidence that we are believing in a God who is real. 
Now, from where does faith come? Romans 10, 17 tells us that, isn't it? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, the more we study God's word, the more we understand who God is, our faith in this God is built up. As I often tell people, do you need small faith in a big God or big faith in a small God? It is not the size of your faith, it is the size of your God that is important. So if your God is too small, your faith is definitely going to be small. But as we open God's word, study God's word, we find that our understanding of God increases. When our understanding of God increases, our faith also increases. How do we take up the shield of faith? We take up the shield of faith by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, our faith is dependent not on us. We don't have faith in faith. We don't say, yes, somehow we will be able to survive this life. No, we have faith in God that he won't let us down. We have faith in God that the enemy has been defeated. We have faith in God that he is the one who would enable us to stand firm on victory ground. Now, why is a shield associated with faith? A shield guards and protects. When Shedrach, Meshach and Abednego were put into the fiery furnace, what did they say? Our God is able to deliver us from this fate. We don't know if he will or not, but that doesn't matter. This is what he has told us. We should not bow down. We will not bow down. That was faith, isn't it? So that is what protected them. They could have bowed down and said, you know, maybe after that ask God for forgiveness or after that say, Lord, we are sorry. No, no. These guys said, no, our faith is, Lord, this is what we believe in who you are. You would not let us down. And that shield guarded them. That shield protected them. And that is what we come up against. When Satan comes up with his attacks, we put, we raise that shield of faith to say, Lord, I believe you are able to give me the victory. A shield is the first line of defense. While the rest of our armor helps protect us from Satan's onslaught, it is not what you ideally want to be using to absorb every hit. You don't know, for, you don't, for example, and I want to go into the battle intentionally blocking everything with a helmet on your head. But the shield is what is given for every fiery dart of the enemy. You and I are able to lift that shield in the right direction. So when our faith is in God's power and care, and that is strong, that is, it is impossible for Satan to break through that shield and to land an attack. The rest of the armor may be battered, you know, but when we raise the shield of faith, then that still enables us to be strong. How else can the shield be used? How else can the shield be used? Remember, as I mentioned to you, they used it as a team together, as a team together. When the Roman army joined its shields together, it became like an unstoppable force. And even for us today as a church, if we recognize we are one body and join our shields together, strengthen each other with our faith, building one another up and serving the body as we are able, then we too will become an unstoppable force able to take on any challenge. Remember, this battle is not just our battle. This battle is for all of us. And if we have to, all of us have to be winning together, then we need to stand together. 
as Jude 1.3, which says the common salvation that has been entrusted to us. God's, the faith you know, of our fathers has been entrusted to us for our safekeeping to pass it on to the next generation. And when Satan is trying to knock off that truth, when Satan is trying to you know, say, don't believe this anymore, the liberal theologians are coming up with different, different thoughts. When we can work together, when we can emphasize we are a team, we are a body, to make sure that the gospel, the, the genuine gospel is protected and passed on to the next generation. Ask yourself, do you have the shield of faith? Is your shield always lifted up, you know, or is it down? Fifthly, the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. What purpose did the helmet serve in the Roman army? During the Roman period, the soldier's helmet was made out of bronze or iron. And to make the helmet more comfortable, the soldier will cover his head or line his helmet with cloth. Just as much as today also when you're riding a motorbike, you cover your head with a cloth and then put your helmet on top of it. The helmets would have a large strip of dyed horse hair down the top center. And the different colors of this hair distinguished rank. And the helmet usually covered part of the face and also the back of the neck. And this provided protection from head injuries in hand-to-hand combat and in falling debris. So, the helmet protects the head from the attacks of the enemy. The helmet protects the head from the attacks of the enemy. Let's look at what the spiritual implications are, okay? Before we put something on, we must understand what we are putting on. Otherwise, we may put the wrong thing. It's like, for example, we say, just because I must have a helmet, I put a helmet which is not an ISI mark, which is not going to protect my head. That's going to be of no use, isn't it? So our spiritual helmets are salvation. So we need to correctly identify what salvation means. Salvation is not something that we do. Salvation is something that Christ has done for us. Acts 4.12 tells us, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Salvation is a person. Salvation is not our good work. Salvation is something that Christ has already done for us. That is the spiritual helmet. Any other salvation, any other helmet that we are wearing, we think it will protect our head. It is not going to. How do we put on this salvation? Very simple. It says, Luke chapter 13, verses 3 and 5, Except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So that is the personal profession of our faith. So our salvation should be clear. We must be knowing very clearly what is salvation, correct identification, not our good works, but on what Christ has done for us. How do we get into that? Making sure we are repented of our sins and accept salvation as a free gift. Now, how does the helmet of salvation help in our spiritual battles? How does it help in our spiritual battle? Number one, it is a sign of Christ's lordship over our lives. When we are putting this on our head, when we are covering our head, what we are really saying is, I am not in charge, 
Christ is the one who is over me. He is my Lord. Romans 14, 8 says, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. So by putting that salvation, uh, the helmet of salvation, we are actually declaring, Lord, this life is not mine. This life belongs to you. You are the Lord of my life. Secondly, it means Christ's victory has become my victory. When Christ got the victory over Satan and sin, you know, when we put that on our head, we are saying his victory has become my victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, it allows us to win the battle of the mind. 1 Corinthians 2, 16 says, But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. So God has given us his mind, his lordship, his victory. And when we put that helmet of salvation on our heads, this is what we are declaring. So Satan cannot get into our mind. Satan cannot get into our thoughts because our thoughts, our attitudes are going to be controlled by the mind of Christ that is in us. So, with the helmet that is securely fastened on our heads, we can have the same confidence that Paul had. No matter whatever we go through, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Satan will come and say, hey, you are suffering so much for the right thing, for the truth. Why do you have to suffer so much? No. And our human mind may say, hey, what's the point of continuing on? But if you have the mind of Christ, if you have the helmet of salvation, we are able to affirm together with Paul that this present time is nothing compared with the glory that you will have. Number four, how do we keep the salvation secure? How do we keep the salvation secure? Remember, salvation comes from God and it is God who is on our side. Second Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 to 8, Paul writing at the end of his life says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me but also all who have loved his appearing. Paul had this vision clear. Paul made sure that his helmet was secure on his head. He fought the good fight. He made sure that no matter whatever, even at that time, there were the Gnostic teachings, there were other uh, heretical teachings that were there. Paul made sure that he fought the good fight to make sure that he did not give up. He finished the race, that which God had asked him to do to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He was faithful. He kept the faith. Imagine after all those years of ministry, at the end of his life, he's sitting in a dungeon. You know? He did not give up on life. He did not give up on the Lord. He kept the faith. And that is making sure that your helmet is secure. The next one, the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit. This is the only armor of offense. This is the only armor that is mentioned here in the offensive capacity. Now, the others are all to defend the onslaughts. This is the one that you can use to offend the enemy. Number one, what purpose did the sword serve in the Roman army? What purpose did the sword serve in the Roman army? 
the soldier's, uh, the Roman soldier's sword was made of iron and was between two to three feet long. A blacksmith would heat the iron and cover the red hot iron with coal dust to strengthen the sword when cooled. The handle of the sword could be made out of many different materials, including wood, bone, ivory, and iron. And uh, while the sword could be used for defense, it was designed for attacking the enemy in a hand-to-hand combat. A soldier would skillfully use the sword to defeat the enemy and protect others. Okay, So the sword is an offensive tool. So why a sword? Why is the only one offensive sword, that, uh, uh, one offensive tool that has been given to us? Hebrews chapter 4 and 12 gives us uh, this sword, the meaning of that. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The all-powerful sword of God is able to cut through every defense our enemy can raise. Okay? No matter whatever he may come up to capture our minds, he is with God's word we are able to get through. And the sword is you know, uniquely crafted for that. Now remember, swords are used for close combat. It is not used for <coughs> long-range warfare. Could this imply the nature of the battle a Christian has to fight? That our fight, our trials are not long-range affairs, but it is in a one-on-one, okay? Uh, James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Okay. So swords are used for a close combat. When we are going through the individual trials of life, those are the times you know, that Satan will try to knock us down. But that's the time that the word has to be, that the sword has to be used. So let's look at the description of the sword of the spirit. Let's look at the description of the sword of the spirit in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. First of all, the word of God is alive. The word of God is alive. The Bible is more than just words on a page. It is the living word of God. And as a result, because it is not just mere words, but powerful, it can definitely kill and defeat all the attacks of the evil one. Secondly, the word of God is powerful. The word of God is powerful. It is alive and it is powerful. John 1.1 1, 1 says the word was with God and the word was God. So the word has the same power of God. These are spoken words of God. Thirdly, the word of God is sharp. A metal sword can cut flesh, but the sword of God can cut into the spiritual realm. With one side of the sword, when you speak about the double-edged sword, with one side... The sword attacks and kills the enemy. On the other side of the sword, you know, it is used to cut off the wrong things in the lives of the God's people. So that's what the double-edged sword is all about. On one side, to attack the enemy. On the other hand, also to look into the inner beings and make sure the wrong things are cut off. The word of God is dividing. 
and it divides light from darkness, truth from lies. Okay, it divides, it makes it plain. Hey, this is right, this is wrong. No gray areas about it. Fifthly, the word of God is discerning. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is hidden. The enemy never has a secret or a hidden agenda. The Bible tells us, be careful, be knowledgeable of the and our plans of the enemy. We must be aware of the plans that the enemy uses to try and trip us down. So how can we make sure about the plans? How can we know about these plans? How can we put on the sword of this spirit? Two important things. First of all, we need to study the Bible. Study the Bible. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The better you know the word, the better you will be equipped to use the sword. If you don't know the word, if you don't know the passages of scripture, you don't think that suddenly when you're going through a particular problem, a verse will come to your mind which you didn't even know existed in the scriptures. No, we must study the Bible, put it into our minds so that at the point of time of need, this will come up. Secondly, we need to saturate our lives with the Word of God. We need to saturate our lives with the Word of God. Deuteronomy 11, 18 and 19 says, You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down, and when you rise. This basically is saying it is not just a once a week affair, it is not just on a Sunday, but it is on a everyday being. So we need to study the Bible, and we need to apply it into our lives, saturate it into our lives on a daily basis. Any promises that we can you know, stand on? Simple promises. Matthew twenty four thirteen tells us, He who endures to the end shall be saved shall be saved. God assures us of that victory. Romans 8, 31 tells us, What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? So he says, take up the sword. I am assuring you, you will definitely be victorious. So don't run away from the evil one. Stand firm. If you look at this armor, you would notice that all this armor that is asked to be put on is all for the front. There's nothing for the back. In other words, God does not expect us when the enemy attacks to turn around and run away from him. If we turn around and run away from him, then your back is exposed and you are definitely going to be attacked. God is saying, put on this armor, take on these promises. You are on victory ground, so don't give up. Finally, in order to succeed, we must definitely pray always. Pray always. That's what... uh, 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 He mentions in the last part of it. No matter how complete the armor it is, no matter how much we may know, I have learned all about these war strategies. Finally, it is our daily dependence on God to take us through each day. And that's why it says we must pray always. How can we be praying always? Okay, In Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, Jesus gave this parable to say that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Now, you remember the parable of the an unjust judge, an individual who was unjust but gave in to the pleadings of the woman 
God says of the widow, God says, look here, don't you know, think that God is like that. God is willing to respond to your cries immediately. So pray at all times. So we must pray always, Ephesians says, with all supplication. What is supplication? What is supplication? Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. A supplication is a petition or a special request of God. So pray always, present particular requests. Hey, you're in a situation, this is a trial you're facing, you know, you're put on that armor, enemy is attacking, you know, pray, ask God. God, here's the situation, help me to stand firm. Thirdly, what role does the spirit play in a Christian's prayer? Now, this is what Romans 8, 26 and 27 says, the spirit himself helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So here is a need that you want to present, but we do not know, God, how we should present this need, what we should pray for specifically. This is where the Spirit of God comes along and prays for us. Isn't that something that we need to be grateful for? Because the Spirit makes intercession for us and we are led by God. What, who or what should we be praying for? Who or what should we be praying for? In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, Paul writes, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end and with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me. Who should we be praying for? For all the saints and for those individuals who are in leadership. So he says, pray, stand firm in these uh, uh, in the truth, don't give in to the wiles of the evil one. And as we put on this you know, armor, and as we pray daily, here's a simple format that we can use you know, to remember this armor and also to go through this every day of the week. Sunday, S would stand for strap on the belt of truth. Monday, M would stand for Make fast the breastplate of righteousness. Tuesday, T, tread in the shoes of peace. Wednesday, W, wield the shield of faith. Thursday, T, think within the helmet of salvation. Friday, F, fight with the sword of the spirit. Saturday, S, steadfastly pray in the spirit. You can use this format to maybe highlight each one, you know, during the each days of the week and focus and pray and ask God to make sure that this particular armor is there. You could also use this format to remember all these, you know, five plus one, you know, you know five of the uh, defense, one of the offense, and finally couple it all together steadfastly pray in the spirit. Remember, after all this armor that we need to put on, the scripture says, stand firm. Don't run away from this you know, attacks of the evil one. The back is not you know, protected. Stand firm because God says, I have given you the victory and definitely 
you will not fail. Let's bow our heads and pray together.